The following audio is from Potomac Heights Baptist Church, located in Indian Head, Maryland. More information about Potomac Heights Baptist Church is available at www.phbc.com. Potomac Heights Baptist Church exists to glorify God and to make Christ known to the ends of the world by helping one another become more like Jesus. It is our hope that you will prayerfully listen to this sermon audio. So I don't know if you know what time of year it is. This is uh, March Madness time of year, and I love March Madness, the NCAA basketball tournament. It's one of my favorite sporting events of the year. 64 teams started out on Friday with a chance to make history. Uh, you only need to win six games to do it. Six games, so a six-game winning winning streak, and you are the college basketball championship team. Uh, now, mind you, some of those 64 teams they stand a better chance of getting struck by lightning than winning six games in a row in this tournament. But that's part of the fun of it, right? Is to to see this and uh, to see this event take place. Who would have predicted a couple of days ago that Oral Roberts, 15th seeded Oral Roberts, would beat number two seed? Ohio State, or who would have predicted that the 14th seed, Abilene Christian, would beat the third-seeded Texas? Now, if you're not a basketball fan, you're like, oh, okay, who cares? But this is, I mean, the upsets are part of what makes this a fun tournament. It's fun to root for these underdogs. And so the church staff, we, we've, um, we're having a little fun with it this year. We did this in 2019 as well. Uh, so each of us, so me, Brian, and Sheila, we fill out our brackets and to, to see uh, just just for fun to see who can pick the uh, the winning uh, team or who can, if you will, get most of the games right. Sheila, by the way, was uh, the winner in 2019. She handily beat Brian and I uh, on that. In 2020, of course, there wasn't a tournament because of COVID. Um, and so this year, we've already had the first round of the tournament. Um, I have the most points so far, but Brian has the strongest bracket so far. He's got more people left that have a chance to go all the way. Like, I've already lost three of my Elite Eight teams. Um, to, so I'm, 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 I'm in a weak position. But I'm hoping that my bracket will make a comeback because it's a long time between now and April 5th. But you understand, of course, when I use the word hope in that sense, when I say I'm hoping my bracket will make a comeback, that using hope like that, that that's doesn't mean anything there's or there rather there's nothing distinctly christian about using hope in that sense and and here's what i mean you know when i say i i hope my team will win the championship or i hope my bracket will make a comeback um that's that's pretty much the same thing as saying i wish this would happen right but christian hope is different from simply wishing something to happen christian hope is based on the promises that God has made for us. And Christian hope is rooted in God's truth and mercy. And that's what our central truth is for today. So if you have a Bible with you and you're in Romans 15, say amen. Amen. All right. Let's read verses 8 through 13 together, please. You follow along as I read. Paul writes, he says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the uncircumcised, to show God's truthfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. 
And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the nations extol Him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word, your word that is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, and we pray now that you would use your word, that your spirit would accompany the proclamation of your word, that you would use this time to mold us and shape us. We know that your, your word is good, It's profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God, that we might be equipped for every good deed. And so help us, Father, today, as you mold us and shape us. We pray in his name. Amen. So, again, the the, the central idea for the sermon is Christian hope is rooted in God's truth and mercy. So, three points. First, truth. Truth that's spoken to the patriarchs. We see this in verse 8. Most of us are probably leery to do business with people who don't keep their word. Right? Suppose, for example, you have a contractor that promises to have the job done by Friday. And since the job, you know, he's promised to make it complete by Friday, and so then you begin to make plans based on that promise. You expect the job to be done on Friday. But even so, you're a realist. You realize some things can prop, you know, happen that, that weren't expected. And so the job lasts a little bit longer. You're willing to extend some grace. But if that same contractor repeatedly makes promises that he doesn't keep, then you're generally going to find somebody else with whom to do business, right? You recognize that that somebody who continues to make promises that he doesn't keep, maybe, maybe that's a character flaw in that individual to repeatedly fail to keep his word. And so you move on to someone else. But, but here's the amazing thing about God. When we think about God, the amazing thing about Him is that over thousands of years, not over a brief period of time, but over thousands of years, God always keeps His word. When God makes a promise to do something, you can take it to the bank. God always is true to His Word. And so that's why Paul begins in verse 8 this way. He writes, Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. Now I'm going to come back in a minute to talk about what it means for Christ to become a servant to the circumcised. But for right now, I want us to focus on what he's talking about there, to show God's truthfulness. What, what truth is he talking about here? Well, thankfully, Paul doesn't leave us without a witness there. He doesn't stop with that. He goes on and he explains what he's talking about. And in the latter half of verse 8, he says that God's truthfulness is demonstrated by confirming the promises given to the patriarchs confirming these promises to the patriarchs, which, which for some of us might lead to another question. It's like, well, who are these, what is a patriarch and who are these patriarchs? Well, there, there are three men who are considered the patriarchs of the Jewish faith. They're made up of three generations of Jewish men, a father, his son, and his grandson. So Abraham, 
Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob's name is later turned to Israel. But those are the three patriarchs. That's, that's who Paul is talking about here. And we can read, you can read about them. You can go there uh, from Genesis chapter 12 to the end of Genesis. You read all about those patriarchs. They lived a long time ago. To put it in perspective, Abraham was born about 4,000 years ago. Okay, So that in my book qualifies for a long time ago. But the Bible shows us that God made many, many promises to these men, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Over and over again, God promises them And even when it appears that the promise has no way of coming true, God would still remind them that I've made promises to you and these promises are going to come true. So here's a sampling of those promises. You don't need to turn to Genesis and follow along because I'm going to be moving uh, rather quickly from one to the next. But in Genesis 12, God makes this promise to Abraham. Now, at, at this point in Genesis 12, his name is still Abram. It's later going to be changed to Abraham, but... This is what it says, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now at this point in Abraham's life, He's an old man, and he and his wife, his wife is also old. They don't have any children. So it looks like this promise has no way of coming true. But it does come true. In Genesis chapter uh, 22, Abraham and Sarah, they finally have a son. They name him Isaac, and they're, they're so happy to have a son. They're confident that it's through Isaac that the promises are going to come true. But then God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. Isaac to kill him can you imagine that for a moment you've waited years you've waited decades for this son and now you have him he's an adolescent and God says kill him sacrifice him what does Abraham do well without a moment's hesitation Abraham went to sacrifice his son in, in fact, Abraham goes so far as to tie up his son, to put him on the altar and take out the knife to slay his own son. But then at the last moment, God tells Abraham to stop. And we read this promise in, in Genesis 22. This is verses 17 and 18. God speaking to Abraham says, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Later, Isaac, he's become a man now. He's got a family of his own. And he makes this promise to Isaac in Genesis 26, verse 4. I will make your offspring as the stars of the heaven and will give you or give to your offspring all these lands, and to your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Isaac and his wife have two sons, twin sons, Esau and Jacob. Jacob's the younger of the two, but God promises to do great things through Jacob. And this is his promise in Genesis 28. This is the last of the promises that I'm going to read. There there are many more of them, but for our sake this morning, this will be enough. Genesis 28, verses 14 and 15. 
your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and and in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promise to you. All of those promises, every one of them appeared at one point or another doomed to fail. And yet they all came true. But still, you might be wondering right now, what, what is Jesus? What does Jesus have to, where does he fit into this? What, where does Jesus fit into the promises as a servant to the circumcised? Well, it's interesting back in Romans 15 that Paul uses the language of servant there. When I first read the passage, my mind immediately went to Philippians 2, uh, where Paul tells us that Jesus himself humbled himself by becoming a servant. And I thought for sure there's got to be a connection there. But as I studied more, I realized that I don't think Paul's making a reference to Philippians 2 at all. The, the Greek word in Philippians 2 that Paul uses to, to say that Jesus was a servant it's, it's servant as in a slave. The Greek word is doulos uh, there. But here in Romans 15, the Greek word that Paul uses is diakonos. Two, two, two entirely different words. And here in Romans 15, it, it means a servant as in one who ministers to the needs of others. The word diakonos, it's the same word that's elsewhere translated in the Bible as deacon. And so when we talk about deacons in the church, this is what a deacon is. A deacon is a servant to the church. A deacon ministers to the needs of others. Specifically, a deacon ministers to the needs of the church. But Paul here, he's showing us that Christ is ministering to the needs of the circumcised and ultimately to the needs of the Gentiles as well. But here, ministering to the needs of the circumcised. God had made a promise to all the Jewish people. He had made a promise that they would outnumber the stars in the sky, the dust on the earth. He's made a promise as well that through them all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Now, at this point in history, that first promise has already come true. I mean, the Jewish people are a, are a large people. They, they number in the millions of people. They, they are a large people. But that second promise... That through them, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. How is that going to happen? Well, that would happen as Christ ministered to the people by bearing our shame on the cross. That's what it means that Christ became a servant. That He ministered to us by bearing our shame on the cross. Now, think through this with me for just a moment. Think about your own moral standards. Now, maybe your moral standards, maybe they compare or they correspond with the biblical standards. Maybe they don't. But I want you to think about your own moral standards. How are you doing at keeping them? And remember, these are your standards. These are not standards that somebody else has foisted upon you. These are your own standards. How are you doing at keeping your own standards? My guess is, None of us in this room are doing a very good job at it. You know, there's a lot of talk, for example, about doing good for the environment these days. And by the way, that's a good thing. Christians are called to be good stewards of the environment. 
And so if that's one of your standards, your own personal standards, that you say, I want to be good to the environment, then good on you. That's a good thing. But how are you doing with that? How are you doing with that personally? Are you, are you doing everything you can to protect the environment? Do, do you carpool when you can? Do, do you only drive when it's maybe too far to you know, walk or take a bike or public tra- transportation is not available? You know, so if it's a mile to the grocery store and you think, well, I can just walk to the grocery store and already, nah, I'm going to get in the car and I'm going to drive to the grocery store. Or are you mindful, here's a phrase, we of, your, of your carbon footprint? And, and does your mindfulness of that carbon footprint, does it affect the choices that you make every day? That's, that's one particular standard. Maybe, maybe let's choose another standard. Uh, I had a conversation with a young adult woman not too long ago and she told me, that in her opinion, it was immoral. It was immoral for some people to have too much money. Name, names like Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Elon Musk, those names were bantered about. All of them, if you don't know who they are, they're all billionaires. I don't know any of them personally, but they're all billionaires, right? Every one of them are billionaires many times over. And she argued that it was immoral for people to have that much money, to have too much money, more money than they needed to live on. And so just a little voice inside my head Turn, I turned the question away from Bill Gates and Elon Musk and turned it away from them. And I asked her, I said, do you have more money in the bank than you need to live on? And as it turns out, she does have more money in the bank than she needs to live on. Now, she, she's not a billionaire or a millionaire, okay? But she's frugal with her money, which is to be, she, you know, she's a saver, that's to be commended. But in the final analysis, she had plenty of money of her own that she could have been helping the poor with. Here's my point. We, we set up these standards, even for ourselves. We want to save the planet, or we want to help people who are poor, and those are good and godly instincts. We should want to do things like that. But all of us, ultimately fall short even of our own standards, much less God's standards. So I, you know, I don't care how gung-ho you are about wanting to save the planet. My guess is that you could probably be doing more than you're doing right now. And I don't care how passionate you are about helping the poor. You, you, there's probably more that you could be doing to help the poor. Now, I, I don't say these things to ultimately bring despair so that we don't do anything. But I mention them because for each of us, there's a certain shame that we can't even keep our own standards. Again, much less God's standards. And that's where Christ comes in. That's where Christ becomes a servant. You see, Christ became a servant. He served humanity by bearing our shame on the cross. And yes, we all have shame. We all do. We had a, um, an interesting staff discussion this past week um, and Brian astutely made the point about our fascination with cancel culture and how cancel, cancel culture is based on shame. It's a shame-based idea. You know, we're, we're telling when we want to cancel someone, we're, we're telling them you should be ashamed that you did what you've just done and so we're going to cancel you. Um, just this last week, I learned about an African-American young woman who was canceled, forced to resign from her new job because of some tweets that she had made over a decade before while she was still a teenager. Okay? As a teenager. So just young people, listen, I have this conversation with my son. 
Young people, let's be careful what you do on those things. You think, ah, oh, it's not a big deal. I'm just a teenager. This woman just lost an, an incredibly high profile job because of something she had done while she was a teenager. Okay? That stuff doesn't go away. We cancel people. We, we tell them that they ought to feel ashamed for what they did. But hear me well, friends. Jesus is the only one who can cancel our shame. He's the only one who can cancel our shame. And he did that by becoming a servant on the cross. Now to point number two. We see mercy. Mercy shown to the Gentiles. This is verses 9 through 12. So the middle section of this passage. So not only did Jesus demonstrate God's truthfulness to the circumcised, but through His service to mankind, Jesus also showed mercy to the Gentiles. He gave us a reason to glorify God. Now, most of us in this room, probably most of us on, online right now watching, we're, we're the Gentiles, okay? We, we might have a small Jewish audience online. I, I don't know, okay? But we're, we're the Gentile people. And so I mention this because here Paul is speaking directly to us. And he's telling us here that we have a reason now to glorify God for His mercy. But before we get too far along here, I want to define some terms for us. So grace and mercy are terms that are commonly used Christian terms. Uh, They're closely related to one another, but they're not the same. They're actually different. And so here's a good way to distinguish between grace and mercy. God shows us His grace when He gives us something we don't deserve. Okay? God shows His grace when He gives us something we don't deserve. So, for example, God gives us eternal life. We don't deserve eternal life. That's grace. But God shows us His mercy when He doesn't give us what we do deserve. Mercy is not being given what we do deserve. So, He demonstrates His mercy to us that He doesn't send us all straight to hell right now. That's what we deserve. But he didn't do it, okay? So you see the difference there? Grace, we're given something we don't deserve. Mercy, we're not given something we do deserve. Here in our passage today, Paul tells us that the Gentiles, that we need to glorify God for His mercy. In other words, we, you and I, we need to glorify God that He hasn't given us what we deserve. Now just let that sink in for just a moment. Let that sink in how merciful God has been toward us. That He hasn't given us what we deserve. And sometimes I hear people, they question why God saves one person and He doesn't save another. The more important question, though, is why does God save anyone? Because we don't deserve it. We deserve His wrath, we all do, but praise God for His mercy. It's that song we just sang a few minutes ago, that His mercy is more. God in His mercy doesn't give us what we deserve. But as we think about mercy, we need to be careful, particularly in, in context of this passage. We might read this text as if, Paul, as if Paul is saying to us here that God made promises a long time ago to the patriarchs about their salvation. But now, only now, is it through Jesus that God is making plans for our salvation as Gentiles. But that's, not, that's nothing even close to what Paul is saying here in this passage. And to demonstrate that point, Paul quotes from four different Old Testament passages for us. Four different passages. Before, before I quote those passages or we rehearse those passages, 
just a, a brief lesson, just a couple minutes on how the Old Testament is structured, okay? The, the Old Testament, or what we call maybe the Hebrew Bible, uh, it's composed of three sections. The first section is called the Torah. It's, Torah means law. That's the first five books of the Bible. That's the Torah. The second section is called the Nebi'im. Uh, those would be the prophets. And the prophets are further divided, they're divided into what are called the former prophets, books like uh, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, and the latter prophets. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, etc. And then finally, the third section of the Old Testament is something called the Ketuvim. These would be the writings. These would be books like Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, etc. These are the writings. So we have the Torah, T, the Nebi'im, N, and finally the Ketuvim, the K. And so this is where people get the name, uh, perhaps you've heard before, Tanakh. It's an acronym for describing the Old Testament. That's the entire Hebrew Bible. Now, I mention this because, and this is super important, friends. This is not just an aside. This is super important because here in Romans 15, Paul quotes from the Old Testament in this order. First, he quotes from 2 Samuel 22. That's one of the former prophets. Okay, that's the Nebim. Then he quotes from Deuteronomy 32. That's from the Torah. Then he quotes from Psalm 117. That's the Ketuvim. And fourth and finally, he quotes from Isaiah 11. That's the latter prophets, again, part of the Nebi'im. Now, do you see what Paul's doing here? He's quoting from every part of the Old Testament, and he's doing that. He's quoting from the law. He's quoting from the prophets. He's quoting from the writings. He's doing that in order to say all of God. This is nothing new for God. All of God's word from the beginning to the end is about God's plan of salvation. And God's plan of salvation from the beginning to end didn't only include the Jews. It included the Gentiles from beginning to end. Now listen to these quotes. King David in 2 Samuel 22 declares, and this corresponds there with verse 9, that King David says that the Gentile, or excuse me, that he will praise God among the Gentiles. Then Moses in Deuteronomy 32, this is the next quote, tells us that the Gentiles are going to rejoice with his people. The psalmist in Psalm 117 says, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and all the peoples extol him. And then Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah 11 says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule who? The Gentiles. And so we learn again, all along, all along, this root of Jesse, who is, by the way, Jesus himself, he was promised to the Gentiles. God's plan of salvation has always included both Jewish people as well as Gentile people from beginning to end. But notice how verse 12 ends. This is still part of Isaiah's prophecy. And he says, in him, that's the root of Jesse, of Jesus himself, in him will the Gentiles hope. Which brings us to our final point. And we see here a prayer of hope. In verse 13, a prayer of hope. The catch word there that ties verse 12 to verse 13 is that word hope. As, and as we saw in last week's passage, Paul closes this little section. He closes this with a prayer. And today it's a prayer of hope. But this, is, this hope is only possible as Jews and Gentiles learn to live in harmony with one another. This is why he's talking about up there in verse um, 8, the, the Jews, and then the next verses, the Gentiles. And last week's passage was all about this harmony that we have with one another. 
that only as we learn to live in harmony with one another under the Lordship of Christ, who is the root of Jesse, only then will we have this hope. You see, in Paul's day, in his time and location, it was Jewish and Gentile believers who needed to learn to live together in harmony. In our day, in our time and location, it's Christians who are black and Christians who are white who need to learn how to live together in Christian harmony under the Lordship of Christ. The specific circumstances may have changed, but the underlying problem is still the same. That we are often leery of the other. We're too quick to see the differences in one another and then we fail to see what we have in common. We're too slow to see our collective humanity. We're too slow to see the image of God in one another. Just this past week, one white evangelical young man in Atlanta, he was a member of a local Southern Baptist church down there. He decided to go on a shooting rampage and he killed eight people. Six of them were Asian American women. In fact, um, in reading that story and looking at other stories and studying for today's lesson or sermon, uh, I learned that hate crimes against Asian people are have dramatically increased in our country since coronavirus happened. I learned about in January of just this year in the city of San Francisco, an 84-year-old man from Thailand was slammed to the ground. The whole, the whole incident was caught on a surveillance camera. Um, he died two days later in the hospital. And then to make matters worse, the DA out there in San Francisco showed little respect for the family or the victim as he referred to the whole incident as a temper tantrum. I mean, is that your, your loved one just died? Is that what you want the DA? Oh, the whole thing was a temper tantrum. I, I know the Atlanta event was carried out by somebody who claimed the name of Christ. I don't know, I don't know about the San Francisco event. But hear me, beloved, as Christians, we can't allow fear of or hatred toward other ethnic groups to be named among us. We just can't. We need to seek harmony with one another and especially, especially as it relates to how we relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Even if we happen to come from a different ethnic background. And that's what we're hopeful for. But we can't achieve that hope on our own. So Paul prays here. He he prays, notice this in verse 13. He prays, may the God of hope. He's praying to the God of hope. That is, he's praying to the God who himself gives us hope. And he prays to that God to, quote, fill us with all joy and peace in believing, unquote. The joy and peace there that Paul prays for, these are byproducts of what it means to believe in God and to believe in his great promises that we would have joy and peace as we believe in God. And he ends that short prayer the same way he begins it. He ends it by reminding us that this hope, this hope to live in harmony with one another, that this hope isn't something we can attain on our own. Notice these last, this last part of, of, of verse 13. He ends by writing, And so, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. 
Beloved, notice that, that it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that we do. It's not by the strength that we muster up in our inner person and say, I can do this today. No, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that we do these things. And not only is it by the power of the Holy Spirit that we do these things, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that we abound in hope. And that when we have the Holy Spirit, we can do more than just squeak by, if you will, with a little hope. When we have the power of the Holy Spirit, we can abound in hope. This confident hope, this overflowing of hope. You see, Christian hope is a sure and certain belief that God will do what He's promised to do. It's it's a resting knowledge. Knowing that God is still at work and He's working in us to make us more like Jesus. Beloved, may we rest in that hope. May we abound in that hope. Let's pray together. Father, I thank You so much for our time together. I thank You for the grace that You've shown us in giving us what we don't deserve. But today, Father, we rejoice. We give You praise that You haven't given us what we do deserve. We thank You that You sent Your Son, Jesus, to be a servant to the circumcised, to show that the promises that were made, both to the patriarchs as well as through Your Word, ultimately promises to the Gentiles that they would be fulfilled and that we would have salvation through Christ. Lord, for everyone who's here today, everyone who's listening to this message today that, that is a partaker of, of those promises that has trusted in Jesus. Lord, I give you praise for them. If there's anyone today, even, even one person, Father, online or in here in person who's never trusted in Christ, Lord, that today, uh, by your grace and mercy, Lord, that they might call out on, in faith to receive your Son. Lord, if they have questions, if they're here in this room, they can come grab me after the service or... If they're online, they can send an email or something to the church where we can respond and speak with them. Lord, we thank You. We thank You that You love us. And we thank You for the mercy You've shown to us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon audio from Potomac Heights Baptist Church. Please feel free to make copies of this audio to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Potomac Heights Baptist Church.